Welcome to the Conversations That Matter podcast. My name is John Harris, and I am pleased to have with me today uh, Steve Lively, and he is going to be talking about his um, book that I have just read, Sam Lively. I'm sorry, I called you Steve Lively. You know, there's a singer named Steve Lively. Are you related to him? No, but my students always say I look like a Steve, so. You do look like a Steve. Forgiven. Yeah. Sam, I'm sorry about that. Sam Lively. Um, and you wrote th- this book that uh, you gave to me, which uh, I've read um, about it, mostly focusing on Disney. It's called The Trojan Mouse, and it just came out, and I would recommend it to all parents, especially, and grandparents, those who are concerned about what their kids are consuming, and maybe even themselves. I mean, parents watch this just as much as kids, it seems. So, uh, Sam, I just got to ask you, why did you write this book? Well, I mean, I have two kids of my own, a five-year-old, or just turned six, and a three-year-old, and I've witnessed um, an entire generation of kids, Christian and non-Christian, who have been raised in an entertainment saturated environment. And even with very motivated, very principled parenting, I've seen a lot of them be primed essentially to switch sides in the culture war and to lose their faith. Um, Primarily, I believe, because of what they consume. And so I decided I was going to pick the, uh, probably the most beloved uh, entertainment company in the last, 50 years of American history as the focal point of my analysis because I'd seen it it had a big impact on me had a big impact on the the kids I grew up with and I think it's having a big huge impact even bigger on uh, the children of this coming generation yeah Yeah, Sam you know I we were talking before I started recording and you uh, grew up in Southern California and I'm from Southern California originally and um and i know that in in california it's maybe a little different but things are the whole country seems to be going the way of california and in california disney was kind of like a religion almost like Mm -hmm. like some people are fanatics Mm -hmm. of going to disneyland uh, seeing every disney movie and it's um it's just more than an entertainment franchise it's like a it's it's a whole world of mythology like we have our biblical stories like these are the stories that are shaping our culture and I, one of the things that clicked for me when i was reading your book is that um you know a lot of time apologists are very focused on worldview and philosophies um but we neglect i think so often stories and the impact mythology has and you seem to get that and i was hoping you could explain um just a little more for someone who's just never heard this and never thought who thinks that stories don't have an impact on worldview, um, flush that out. How do stories impact the worldview? Sure. Well, I mean, it's best to look at yourself as a sort of a blank slate um, when you start out life. And over the course of your life, you're looking to write the story of your own life. And so as reference, you're going to be looking primarily to other people's stories. And so we have obviously our own parents' lives, our, um, our peers' lives as narratives for us to consume, but especially in a modern age where entertainment consumes such a huge portion of our time, we're getting a very large percentage of our stories, of the, of the answers to life from the kind of narratives that we're consuming through entertainment. So for an example, we look around us constantly for examples of what to do and what not to do, right? We're looking for the sort of the guidebook to life. And so we're going to, that's what we would, we treat mythology as mythology is the, 
is the blueprint. It's the blueprint for life. And you can see it in a story like Pinocchio, for example, to go to golden age Disney, you know, we see who the villains are, who the heroes are very early on. We see what types of behaviors are rewarded, what types of behaviors are punished. We see what type of world that Pinocchio lives in, um, if there's good, if there's evil. And so all those kind of things, instead of just being consumed as an escape from our reality, I think it's better understood as a in, informative a input into our reality to give us information on that we can then take into our own lives to decide, is this the path I'm going to take? Is this the kind of, um, is this what villains look like? Is this what heroes look like? And uh, over time, obviously one, one uh, individual narrative is not going to tr transform anybody's worldview. But over time, you plug in enough of that material, enough of that narrative material, and eventually you are going to be remaking, reshaping um, the way you look at life, the way you look at heroes, the way you look at causes and consequences. Yeah, so it reinforces itself. You, you, there's a quote from your book. You said, um, what makes the lure of entertainment particularly irresistible is that we believe it's risk-free experience. Movies and other forms of narrative-driven entertainment aren't the only products to promise us the world but they are the only ones that can wrap it up in a zero commitment package. We trust that after a few up and down thrills and spectacular new sites, we will be deposited safely back in our boring lives with no lasting trauma beyond the faint afterburn of the adrenaline. <laughs> and you say, that's not true. You're actually bringing something with you when you're done with that journey. Yeah. And it's it, oh. the, uh, the title of that, uh, of that chapter is called the melting plot. And it, I think it does function somewhat similar is that you're marinating in narratives constantly and you're observing your subconscious is observing, even if you're not consciously realizing it, um, what's happening to the people around you, whether that's in real life or whether that's the um, fictional lives that you're consuming. And so over time, yeah, that is going to, it's going to prime you. I, I think the best example is, uh, is actually in, um, in the frozen series um, that is, currently um, just passed a billion dollars to be yet another huge that half of America will be watching on Christmas. Probably. I know. <laughs> um, and so it's, it's the, the priming that occurs in that kind of story is that again, people look at it as a magical escape from reality, but what it actually is, it's a, um, it's a projection of what people believe reality should be. And if, if you, if you, if you understand that shift, instead of, am I escaping into some harmless fantasy, rather what you, the reason it's so thrilling is you are projecting yourself into those characters. You are allowing a storyteller to take you where you believe you should be. And, um, and if you understand that about your heart, that the reason your heart is drawn to a story is not because it is trying to escape life but, but it's trying to enter into a better life if you if you understand that it's a fairly subtle distinction but i think it can help you to understand why stories can be dangerous is because your heart is not temporarily preferring their world to yours the heart is actually expressing its true desire and if you allow that desire then to be shaped and transformed by the storyteller and not something that you consciously are taking um, stewardship over and, uh, and, and shaping to in accord with, um, with the Bible, with, with, with tradition, then yeah, you're going to end up finding your own heart pulling you in the direction that the storyteller has primed it to want to go, as opposed to the way that the other 
institutions of culture that you may trust more intellectually are pulling mm-hmm. you. It's interesting. I've been thinking about this more uh, after I read your book because I, you know, I grew up on a lot of. Um, let's just say I was different than a lot of kids. I did watch some Disney, but like my parents, um, you know, they didn't really operate based on the rating systems as much as they did on uh, content and message. And so Mm -hmm. I watched a lot of Westerns and war movies that I think my peers would have thought were violent perhaps at the time or or whatever. Mm -hmm. A lot of, you know, old John Wayne movies, things like that. And I've thought about this. I I thought, you know, I wonder how much that actually really affected me because I think it did. Like I, I, I was doing um, a recently, uh, you would understand this, but a, um, a paper on John Ford and Sergio Leone. And okay. they're um, not to get off the Disney track uh, too <laughs> much, but I was looking at you know, their archetypes and the way that they view reality and the, the way they view providence and their political theory and how it made its way into their stories. And I was thinking, I'm like, yeah, that's, that's where I got that. You know? And I was seeing things I had never seen before. But um, to get back on the Disney track, most uh, kids grow up watching Disney movies from the Golden Age to all the way to Frozen 2, which is it Frozen 2? I think that's the one that now. That's the one that just released, yeah. Yeah. And, and you have a brilliant way, I think, of, um, of, of sort of categorizing this culture battle. And it's a way that I, I don't know if you got this from somewhere else or if you came up with it, but um, you talk about two groups of people about revolutionaries and loyalists and you don't see it as kind of like two fronts where you have like you know traditionally we think of like conservatives liberals fighting but you you see it as like it's actually a culture siege not a culture war and the uh the loyalists are holding out against the revolutionaries who are trying to overturn the the current you know paradigm and and I, i want you to if you can flesh this out with disney a little bit um, cause you seem to trace it from there's loyalist beginnings and then over time it becomes revolutionary. Mm-hmm. What, what, what does it mean to be loyalist? What does it mean to be revolutionary? And, and what is the, what does that story look like? How did that happen in Disney? Right. Well, you have, you have essentially three pillars of, um, a belief that I think define the loyalist and a loyalist is somebody who's going to try to preserve those pillars. So, the first of those is a belief in a hierarchical system, right? With a higher power at the top. And that works on down through things like man over nature, right? Civilization over primitivism, like the patriarch ruling over the family and the, and the children. And so you have a, a hierarchical structure that is in loyalist terms is believed to be good, right? It's protective. It's, uh, it, it's enshrining the progress of of man over a very dark past you know so it's a um the loyalist wants to preserve those hierarchies because they fear what happens when you overturn them right so the the hierarchy would be the first pillar then the second pillar would be this idea of good and evil right a a very um primarily christian derived but it can be downstream for christian in um, in the old golden age, they rarely were explicitly Christian, but they operated off of a very um, distinctly Christian perspective on good and evil, sin and redemption, right? So the, the idea that there is an evil out there, there is a force for good that is resisting that evil, and that there's only a few paths for redemption um, in light of that battle between good and evil and the sin that can contaminate people in as they become sort of collateral damage. Of that battle. So the loyalist is going to believe in those two pillars. And then the final pillar is the, the idea of sacrifice. And that's, that can be sacrifice in terms of uh, time preference, uh, sacrificing present for the future gain, 
right? But but more fundamentally, it's self-sacrifice, being willing to sacrifice your own um, well-being, your own life even, for the benefit of those around you. And so those three things, I think, are the, the three basic pillars that loyalists are always going to be able to rally around. And in the culture war terms, they have also defined the revolutionaries, the people who are trying to overthrow that loyalist center. So if you think of it as two concentric circles, where the loyalists are trying to preserve those three fundamental ways of looking at life, and the revolutionaries are trying to either redefine them or completely overthrow them. And so a revolutionary is going to be somebody who is trying to overthrow any sort of oppressive hierarchy, right? A, um, a, they, they, they want to smash the patriarchy because the patriarch is a hierarch, right? A hierarchical relationship over others, right? And so they want to right. end that hierarchy. They also want to redefine good and evil. Um, in, instead of being objective good and objective evil, they, they much prefer a subjective definition that's much more about group status. So if you're part of a oppressed group, for example, a revolutionary is going to view anything done against that group as evil, right? And they're going to justify anything done on behalf of the group as good. So it's a, it's a, it's a shift from, again, I, this is a little bit more philosophical than I meant to get, but the, the, the general idea is that the revolutionaries are, are against what the loyalists stand for. They're trying to overthrow and, and replace it with this, um, with a negative definition, this idea of we are free from rules of the patriarch. We are, we have a whole new world out there where no one can tell us no, and we can embrace what we were always meant to be if it wasn't for all these hierarchical institutions that have always kept us down. Yeah. And in the, in the third one there, uh, the sacrifice, the, the right. revolutionaries, they want to, uh, have a self-serving, I guess, like motive for living instead of a sacrificing for the group kind of motivation. To, to jump away from uh, Disney for a moment, although technically it's Disney now that they purchased Fox, Avatar was the classic example of the revolutionary ideal of sacrifice in which he sacrifices himself, yes, but he's sacrificing his old oppressive patriarchal identity to become one with the mother nature spirit, which is uh, radically revolutionary in terms of, of, uh, of, of flipping every single hierarchy along the whole spectrum. And so the, the idea of sacrifice from a revolutionary perspective is you're sacrificing the order, the old order to make way for the new. And you actually see that if you watch frozen Two. um, it has a very explicit, um, uh, sacrifice of the old, um, Arendelle, I think it's the name of the city, to the nature gods as a as penance for ha- their colonial um, oppressive past. So, so tell me this: How did the the transition? And I know that your whole book's about it, so you can't tell everything. But in general, like, what happened at Disney? How did we go from you just mentioned Pinocchio uh, and Sleeping Beauty to Frozen? Yeah, well, it's it's a. Uh, a tragic case study in um, not not realizing the the stakes of the of the cultural battle you enter into. I mean, Disney was essentially loyalist by default. It emerged in uh, and it really rose to prominence in a time when America was trying to resist in a very atheistic, communistic um, uh, movement and fascistic movement that was sweeping Europe. Right, so. 
it was, we had uh, in God, we trust, you know, we had all of this very um, loyalist messaging that was emerging from the fifties and, and Disney embraced it wholeheartedly. And so uh, Walt Disney essentially um, built a, a, a giant castle to, to preserve these values, but he never really created a good succession plan to ensure that once he was gone, mm-hmm. that there was going to be someone continuing that um, championing of those values. And so as soon as he died in 1966, um, uh, The Jungle Book was the last movie, that, um, animated movie that he directly supervised there was a giant leadership void and he had never really filled it with anyone who um, understood the gravity of the ideological battles that were going on. So it was a son-in-law, um, a few old hands from the, uh, from the, the business side that were trying to basically just draft on momentum and they got into trouble really quick and think about where Disney is. I mean, Disney's in Burbank. Disney is surrounded by Hollywood. And by the time, um, Disney, uh, Walt's chosen successors has kind of gotten in, um, gotten themselves over their heads and were looking for guidance. They ended up looking around them to Hollywood and Hollywood was more than happy to fill that ideological vacuum Mm -hmm. with the radical antithesis of everything that Disney had tried to stand up for. Yeah. You, you talk about, um, when Mike Eisner took over in this, uh, Katzenberg and he, he had a new formula, um, which I guess brought in some Broadway influence on the Disney animations, uh, and, uh, Oliver was one of them. Um, but you know, they, they kind of like changed the way that they were approaching animation and storytelling. And, uh, and, and it's kind of like, I was thinking about the movies from, you know, this era, um, like you, you were spot on when you're like describing, um, like even for when I was a kid, like I remember being in the theater crying because of Lion King, right? <laughs> I remember like Lion King, very new agey, Mulan, you know, very new agey. Um, like if there's any kind of uh, transcendence or purpose in the movie, it's not from a Christian understanding of what that would look like. It's, it's like it, they got to do it in a different context somewhere on the other side of the world. Yeah, if you look at that as sort of first wave, that was the first wave of revolutionary sentiment. And it, it did, yeah, it came, it had a Broadway style and that was where they really got the, the magic back. Cause Disney was, had been without creative inspiration for quite a while since Walt Disney's death. And so they looked to Broadway for that energy, for that enthusiasm, but with it came that Broadway ethic. And the Broadway ethic was very much about emotional self-fulfillment being the ultimate king, which is a very revolutionary idea that everything has to be sacrificed to make sure that you're happy, that you're, personally fulfilled. And so you can see that as the running theme and to make sure that you can get happiness, think about what has to be sacrificed. Think about what has to be overthrown. And in those stories, especially early on in the, 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 uh, the trilogy, the Renaissance trilogy that launched Disney again on new secular, new revolutionary footing uh, was little mermaid beauty and the beast and Aladdin. And if you think of them as a trilogy, almost like you would the Star Wars trilogy, it, it, it works. They're very, they build progressively on the messaging. And Little Mermaid actually starts out, what I think, I actually am a big fan of Little Mermaid, and I think it's almost prophetic of what would happen later. But if you look at the way they set up, King Triton, right? This big, beefy, divine patriarch, right? Who's trying to protect his daughter, who's trying to set boundaries, who's trying to teach her how to be um, a woman, right? 
And then against that is her own heart, right? Her own um, restless, rebellious, um, singing heart, you know, like she wants to be a part of their world, someone else's world. And so into that, we then introduce Ursula, who is the um, proto-feminist revolutionary, right? The person who's going to get her to smash the patriarchy, right? Mm -hmm. So that she can have the desire of her heart. So if you follow from that, I mean, obviously that doesn't work out very well for Ursula in Little Mermaid, but if you follow <laughs> that through the rest of the Renaissance, you can see it progressively becoming a vindication of Ursula. Ursula actually wins the Renaissance. And after her, all 10 villains of that era are all, all, all men and, and almost exclusively patriarchal men. Yeah. Um, so you immediately go to um, Beauty and the Beast, which caricaturizes masculinity with Gaston, right? And demonizes it through the beast, right? The beast actually is an embodiment of toxic masculinity. He is, he is uh, cursed by an enchantress who in the original fairy tale, by the way, was evil. In the Disney version now becomes a um, sort of a benevolent, um, sort of a fairy type who, who gives the beast mm -hmm. his own benefit. And so from Beauty and the Beast onward, the patriarch is now bound, right? It's, it's something that is, uh, has to be overthrown to allow for people like Belle, then moving on, Jasmine, Pocahontas, Mulan, right? For them to become full-flowered heroines who are now pursuing self-actualization, who are defeating enemies who are almost exclusively male and repressive. The second wave, um, would you say because you said that was the first wave mm -hmm. is the second wave. Then these, uh, li these live action, um, the, the new remakes of these cartoons with live actors or is that, the um, well, the second one, that's an actually an interesting, uh, um, sort of pivot from the company. Cause that actually is more aligned with first wave. Uh, okay. Linda Wolverton was the um, screenwriter behind Beauty and the Beast, the first Beauty and the Beast. And she was the one who really kicked off the live action craze that is now, um, kind of, uh, I think even reaching a little burnout levels with yeah. a lot of audiences, but she was the one who started with Alice in Wonderland. Um, she went back and she reimagined Alice, which was a gap, golden age, fairly, uh, fairly loyalist interpretation of that story. And she turned it into a very revolutionary, very sort of um, arch feminist kind of take on that story. And so that really, I would view that as a continuation of the first wave. Okay. Most of the, if you look at most of the live action ones, they're either uh, almost scene for scene remakes of the original Disney Renaissance works, or they are um, classic revolutionary uh, revisions of, of, of works like Jungle Book. So the second wave, I would view the second wave as what we're seeing now with the sort of the woke version of Disney, which instead of viewing things in terms of patriarchy, of, of just patriarchy, which is the big villain for the first wave, the second wave is much more worried about um, this idea of guilt, right? This idea of, of internal guilt. So it's, it's, it's less worried, uh, um, although they still demonize the patriarch whenever they can, it's much more about how do we come to terms with this idea that the, um, the utopia that the revolution was supposed to deliver, how do we, how do we deal with the, the, uh, the problem that it hasn't yet come? And so the, the characters of the second wave, the, the patriarch has been bound, the revolution has been loosed on the earth. And so usually what the second wave is trying to answer is why isn't the revolution working? 
where are these sort of hidden loyalists out there preventing the revolution from from what movie would be a good example of that i think ragged ralph uh, it's okay, not, i thought yeah. you'd say that yeah it's not the best known. I mean, if you go and watch Frozen 2, Frozen 2 is in the book because it was just uh, released a couple um, weeks ago. Frozen 2 probably takes the crown away from Wreck-It Ralph, but okay. Wreck-It Ralph was really the prototype. It was, it was uh, released in 2012, and it occurred right as a leadership transition had occurred in, uh, in, in Disney's uh, storytelling team. Uh, John Laster had come over from Pixar, and he didn't want to really force himself onto the classic Disney animation brand. So he brought in a whole, a new team. And in that team, there was a, a group of people who brought right around 2011, it's called the great awakening, right? So they were starting to bring in some of those corporate generated ideas of intersectionality mm-hmm. and wokeness into the, the myth- mythological form of narrative. And so Wreck-It Ralph is the ultimate primer i think for people's utopia though is, is another one that you utopia about, yeah utopia yeah. you kind of i think you almost need to understand intersectionality to understand zootopia but wreck it ralph would be a great pr- primer yeah. for any, trying to figure out what why are these people so worried about this kind of <laughs> stuff and it really is if you look at wreck it ralph it's about this video game villain who has to become a uh, who has to come to terms with his own villainy has to realize that he is the problem so it's all these ideas of of like white fragility and uh, white privilege are all bound up in the character of Wreck-It Ralph. And his journey is really one of recognizing um, how to move out of the way to make way for mm-hmm. the next generation of leaders and, um, and how to then spend whatever heroic energy he does have smashing people like him, right? How to become an ally in, in, uh, in preventing him, not only himself from rising to oppressive patriarchy, but actually also going and trying to take down anybody else who represents it. Now, I'd like I'd like to talk about Pixar a little bit, but we're running short on time. So I'm just going to kind of throw that out there is you should get the book so you can learn about <laughs> Pixar. Um, and I, I do recommend it. Uh, Amazon is where I think you that's where you sent it to me. Is that the place you'd like people to go? Yep. Amazon, okay. the Trojan Mouse. All right. So yeah, just Google, Google, <laughs> search the Trojan Mouse on Amazon. Um, one last thing, I just want to make it practical with you for a minute. You said you had uh, kids and, um, you know, what do you do? What do you do as a parent when you're like, well, I don't have time to be an expert on, uh, you know, what a protagonist should look like and, uh, you know, the messaging of all these things before I take my kids. I just want to go to the theater and have a good time. So I'm just going to ask you, I know, you know, you've spent a lot more time thinking about this. What do you do with your kids? Yeah. Well, I mean, just to answer that first point, I mean, we don't have the luxury of treating entertainment as a um, complete let our guard down time anymore. I mean, you have to understand the people who tell the stories have a, uh, a mythology that is diametrically opposed to what anybody who's, who's traditionally like conservative or Christian, you know, those are the, sort of the umbrella terms that loyalism captures. And you, you don't have a luxury of, of letting your guard down and suspending disbelief. So that, unfortunately, there's bad news on that front is you just got to be willing to go in there and be willing to, to view things oppositionally. But what, what I do with my kids is I try to, I don't boycott, I don't shield them from, uh, from anything that uh, has worldviews that, uh, that I disagree with. But what I do try to do is I try to approach it with them oppositionally, right? So as if, if I'm not allowing myself to get swept away, I can also talk to them through the process and not let them get completely swept away. And it's a bit of a killjoy sometimes, 
but if you're if you're walking through with them if you're actually actively sitting down and watching their stuff with them and not just allowing them to be babysat by the kind of entertainment that's that you're putting on then you're going to be able to have these conversations and kids love it i mean kids really do like to talk about the stuff that they've just consumed with you right so if you're watching frozen 2 or frozen this this christmas it's a great chance to just start talking like why do you think that um why do you think that that he's bad in this story what what is the um what is the 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 goal of this character is he why is he trying to accomplish this and if if they can start to see the um the motives of those characters then you can take it to the next level and it's like do you think that that's true do you think that that most people who are in that position would act like that way and so you can just start to get at the the um, the mm. ideas that are potentially dangerous um which is for example that the the stereotyping of a certain type of role is always being villainous right as 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 males in authority is always potentially being abusive or um mm -hmm. or um, tyrannical right and so you just ask them to compare those characters with positive role models in their own life um and to get them to think about well no that's that's not representative uh, that is not something that that i think is going to be um true of my own life and then okay. if you also do it with the characters that they identify with right, right. if you're watching a um, aladdin right the the new live action remake and, and and they're they're investing themselves into that jasmine character into that aladdin character you can just ask them is, is what he did right here would you say that would be good right is the the story is making it good right we're happy that they did this but what if you really did that what if you really stole that loaf of bread right right what if you really um, defied your father in that key moment. Would that be a good thing or would that be a bad thing? And so doing that, you can, they can still enjoy the story. They can still get, love the songs. They can still have fun, but they're not being swept away from you, right? Mm -hmm. You don't want them to be pulled away from you into a hostile storytelling world without you having to say in it. And you said too in your book that they, you know, they can still go back to those golden era films and watch them because they're available and, uh, there's other companies I can't remember which, but there's other alternatives popping up out there with uh, stories. I, I just saw there was an animated Pilgrim's Progress that just came out recently. Yeah, uh, and so I, that's that's another thing too. Is beyond Disney, it's really time for people who are loyalists, as I would term, to, to actually start investing even in lower quality productions, with the with the understanding that even Disney started out pretty low quality. Right. And mm -hmm. that was people rewarded an innovator. People rewarded somebody who was speaking to what they wanted to see. Mm -hmm. And if we can do those same kind of things, even if we're not getting the same quality um, early, we, we are investing our entertainment capital in things that could produce much greater fruit uh, later on, as opposed wow. to just going with what's already matured now, which is unfortunately usually in pretty hostile hands. Yeah, that's great. Well, I appreciate you talking with me about this, uh, Sam. And um, is there somewhere else you want to direct people to find you or is it just the book? Just go to Amazon and type in Trojan Mouse. I don't know if you yeah, have a website. For now, it's just the book. I okay. mean, hopefully soon we'll have a uh, full-blown ministry going, but for now, well, it's Trojan One Mouse. really final thing. I noticed, I saw this on Twitter a couple weeks ago. You have these, these excellent uh, little like profiles of the movies. Where yeah, if you go to um, my Twitter account, um, or the Facebook Trojan Mouse page. Um, so if you just look up the Trojan Mouse on Facebook, 
Um, okay. I've been producing with the help of my wife, these uh, Disney dossiers, which yes. are sort of, uh, so you don't have to read the whole book or if you do read the book and you forget some of the details, the whole idea is to give you a profile, good, bad discussion points of every major Disney uh, film, especially for people who are subscribers to Disney plus. Uh, I hope this will be a really invaluable yeah. aid where you can just click, look through it. Okay. This is what I should look out for. This is what I should celebrate. Um, and these are some discussion points that we could talk about as family afterwards. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you, Sam. God bless you. Have a Merry Christmas. You too. All right. Bye now. So I'm thankful that Sam Lively was able to join me and I cannot recommend uh, his book enough. Uh, if you go to Amazon, you can find the Trojan mouse. Uh, if you want to subscribe to him on Twitter, follow him uh, at Samuel P. Lively. That's Samuel P. Lively um, on Twitter. And, um, and I'm just going to wrap this up with something um, just a little fun because it is Christmas week and I just wanted to share some of my favorite Christmas films and, and a book that I've been reading recently on Christmas um, that now I think has become a tradition. Um, but I'll start with the films. So um, a, a film I've watched around the Christmas season before, I don't do this every year, and this isn't a family tradition, this is something that I just, I, I've done, but uh, is Ben-Hur. And I want this to be a tradition in my house, kind of, because... It's a good movie, um, if you haven't gotten a chance to watch it. One of my favorite, um, it, it, it's sort of a redemption story, um, uh, but, but one of my favorite elements in it is it's a story of Christ in a way, but it's, it's from the peripheral. Like Christ isn't the center character of it, uh, but he, it starts out with the nativity, it ends with uh, the crucifixion, and it's, there's sort of like another life, Judah Ben-Hur, uh, his life parallels um, Christ's life, except that he's involved in other things. Like he's, you know, there's, there's a lot of action in it, um, but he keeps intertwining. He keeps bumping into Christ and it never shows Christ from the front. It always shows him from behind. So you, so there's sort of, and it has a different soundtrack whenever Christ comes on. And so oh, it gives me like goosebumps even thinking about it. I, I love that movie, but it's, it's a, it, <laughs> it doesn't really compromise in any way that I can remember the biblical message um, it, it's like another story in addition to, but it presents Christ, I, I think, in a way that glorifies God and it's done well. I mean, it's whole, Hollywood's golden age, you know, awesome soundtrack, big budget, just, um, uh, you, you gotta see it. It's it, the nativity scene and the nativity music. It's just, it's my favorite nativity scene on film. Um, all right, so that's one. Um, the other two are movies that um, I uh, have been, you know, in my family, they were uh, movies that we'd watch every Christmas, just about. And um, one of them is uh, a movie I watched with my wife the other night called It's a Wonderful Life. And, you know, the reason I'm bringing this up, you, you think everyone would know about it, but I was getting my hair cut about a year ago. And I asked the person cutting my hair, I said, what's your favorite Christmas movie? And she started rattling off all these Hallmark movies I had never heard of. And I said, what about It's a Wonderful Life? She goes, what's that? I'm like, well, Jimmy Stewart, who's he? I'm like, all right, well, <laughs> you have a homework assignment. Um, we watched it the other night, and it is, it is a really good movie. It's not, it doesn't have the nativity scene. It, it just, it takes place around Christmas time at the end. Um, but it is a, it's just a good movie um, about how our lives affect other people's lives. And um, it reminds me of the, the Francis Schaeffer quote: "There are no small people, no small places uh, to God. That God cares about even the details." And um, and so I would, I'm not going to tell you the whole plot, but that's, it's a very good movie. And I would encourage you to watch that. It teaches good moral lessons. And then um, uh, last uh, but not least, 
is, uh, and by the way, it is fantasy. I should say that it is fantasy. There's some people are going to watch it and they're like, hey, there's angels in this and angels don't do it. Yeah, there's, there's some angels throughout it that it's, anyway, it's a fantasy, but it, it's a, it's Christian in its, um, in its value system. So there's that. Um, Scrooge is another one, uh, Christmas Carol. And, um, I should have had this queued up probably, but it's the, I think it's 1951 version of Scrooge that we've always watched. I've seen a few versions of it. Um, but th this probably is the best one. Yeah. It's a Christmas Carol, 1951. Uh, yeah. IMDB says it's an 8.1 out of 10. So it's, uh, it, it's a good one. And, um, Al Al Alistair Sim is the one who plays Scrooge in it. And, and there's been so many renditions of this. Of course, I like them up at Christmas Carol too, but, uh, but th this, this is a good version of it. And, uh, I actually, oh, I have it somewhere in here. There, I have a facsimile of the original Christmas Carol that was given to me uh, by a, a good friend of mine. And um, I'm hoping to read it for the first time this year. But on that note, here's another, um, this this will, th this is an awesome book, guys. And maybe I'm a nerd, maybe I'm a history guy that just is out of touch, I don't know. But this is a book called Old Christmas uh, by Washington Irving. And I just, I don't know, maybe you'll never like, <laughs> You'll never trust my recommendations again um, if, if you read this. I don't know because <laughs> it is kind of like it's a peculiar book. It's not the kind of book that most people today read for pleasure. But I got so much pleasure out of it. Like I can't like I, I become obsessed with this book a little bit. And it's, it's the weirdest thing. Like I found it. I found it on Amazon uh, Audible. I found it on Audible. And it's so short and I, I listened to it last year and I was like, oh, this is so good. And so I listened to it again this year and my wife fell asleep, we were driving. And so I ordered the um, the actual book itself because I was like, oh, I gotta read it. And I'm, I'll probably listen to it now every Christmas. But Washington Irving uh, goes to England and he's already like, talk about nostalgia, right? He's It's like the 1830s and he's already talking about how like, <laughs> they don't have the good old fashioned Christmases anymore that happened on the English countryside. And he wants to go find a good old fashioned Christmas. And so he, he eventually, through a course of events, he finds himself, he describes all the events that lead him to the, the countryside uh, for, into this manner, for the, the way Christmas used to be done in the good old English days. And I'm thinking, man, this is like 1830s and he's already talking about like how times have changed and we've lost you know, some of the traditions and, um, and one of the things, this is one of the things that's interesting to me, uh, we talk about hierarchy, but the the lord of the manor or whatever, the, the guy who's running the estate, Christmas was a time when he would he would endear himself to the peasants and uh, who near him on, on his property, uh, to the uh, to his servants, uh, to those who were renting from him and so forth. They, they would all come and he would just shower them with blessing. He'd set up games for them to play. He'd um, present, you know, he, and he describes this. He describes that this is like, this was falling out of fashion, but this is the way that it used to be done. And all, there wasn't this class warfare thing. Like the, the people that were on the bottom loved the, the Lord of the manor and he loved them. And at Christmas, their hearts were knit together. And it was like this beautiful thing that happened. Like they feasted for days and like, I don't know. It's just the coming together, the unity it was just like a beautiful thing. And it reminded me as I was reading, I was like, this is like what heaven's like, kind of. Like, like there's a hierarchy and like you sit at the master's table and you, and I started thinking about all this and I was like, hey, hierarchy is actually beautiful. It's vilified so often because it can, it can be abused. It's possible for it to
anything can be abused, okay? But but it's actually when it's functioning right, the way it's supposed to function, like when when people on the top of the social ladder uh, are, you know, lavish blessings on people at the bottom and they look with gratitude at the people at the top, like there's just something beautiful about it. And I've never seen something capture it better, well, than Old Christmas. So yeah, now now uh, you can go read Old Christmas by Washington Irving. It's very short and I hope you'll enjoy that. It's on Audible too. Have a Merry Christmas. I'll see you on the other end. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.